It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now... Here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning in here to Talent Talk Radio Show. You're joining me uh, today, and we have two wonderful guests lined up, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But if this is the first time you happen to be tuning into the show, well, welcome, and give you a little uh, kind of understanding about how the show works. You know, I'm uh, able to meet and interact with, with so many uh, inspiring leaders all the time at different events and groups that, um, you know, I, I always usually ask them a million questions and try to figure out what their secrets were and what I could learn from them. And so I really designed this show to give you the opportunity to listen in on that conversation. So instead of me having it by myself off in the corner with them, we've put it on the radio and hopefully allow you to, to hear something that uh, you might be able to use down the road. Uh, Talent Talk is live uh, every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You can find us on Internet Radio on TuneIn Network. And um, as I mentioned, uh, we've already mentioned uh, here, you can find us on iTunes. That's where a lot of people uh, interact through the podcast app there. And also we're syndicated now with iHeartRadio. So on any device, if you don't happen to have an Apple-based device, but uh, any device can find the iHeartRadio website or the iHeartRadio app. And we've already amassed a huge following of almost 300,000 of you interacted with one of our podcasts last week. Big thank you to everyone who tuned in, listened, and hopefully learned something. If you have a uh, question here for one of my two guests as we get started uh, into the show, you can send them via Twitter. Um, just pop in your question. Uh, add the at PeopleG2 if there's room. But most importantly, you got to have that hashtag talent talk, all one word. My producer, Mike, will feed me in the best questions, and we'll uh, try to get him in the show if you send us something good. All right, so my uh, two guests today are uh, Beverly Case. She's the author and founder of Career Systems International. I know she's a well-known speaker as well. And then we also have uh, Sean Murphy, CEO and founder of Switch and Shift. Try to say that uh, ten times quickly. All right, but let's go ahead and get to my first guest. Uh, Bev, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell everyone a little bit about yourself uh, and your experience kind of in the the HR space. Well, it's been about three and a half decades in the HR space, and it still has my passion and my interest. And um, it started when I had a chance to go back to UCLA and pursue my doctorate. It was in the 70s, and the doctorate was a unique fellowship in change management. And I got interested in careers, 
And um, the subject of my doctoral thesis was mobility. So I wrote a book right when I got out called Up Is Not The Only Way. And in a way, it's been my theme song for the last 35 years. And I have an organization that has about 40 people, and we work uh, globally on three issues, on engagement, on retention, and on career development. Well, then you're the perfect person to have on the show, because those are probably (laughs) three of our biggest topics that come up on a regular basis uh, here on the show, and really uh, center around a lot of the questions that we get from listeners on on things that they're struggling with inside their company. I know you've written three books, and one of the biggest sellers was titled uh, Help Them Grow or Watch Them Go. Maybe you can, we'll start the conversation off there, maybe talk a little bit about this book and the impact it's had on, on its readers. Sure, sure. Help Them Grow or Watch Them Go, um... It was published in 2012. And, um, you know, I have a publisher who believes the title of your book should say everything, not the subtitle, so that if people read the title and flip the back over and look at the back cover, they say, I get it. So help them grow or watch them go says exactly that to managers everywhere, at any level, in any organization, that your people want to grow, they want to be challenged, they want you to notice them. They want you to um, to help them learn new things. And if they don't get that, they'll go either physically or psychologically. Physically meaning they'll go to a competitor. Psychologically meaning maybe even worse, they'll stay and not give you all of their discretionary effort. So help them grow tried to take the work I've done in career development for like 30 years and spin it down to a couple of simple ideas in no more than 100 pages. Because now we know readers don't read more than 100 pages. So um, it's my new thing. Can Can I say what I need to say in that little time? Well, that's surprising to hear that readers are only 100 pages. So I do a, a book club in L.A. and in Orange County for HR pros, and we, we all tend to read the whole book, but I guess Good. maybe we're maybe we're, we're, rare. we're the nerds. But You're rare, right. <laughs> but that's why we have the book club, is that it, everyone has this uh, duty to show up and have read it to be able to have a conversation that's about great. it. So we have that peer pressure to to not show up empty-handed or without any uh, content to talk about. But, you know, you brought up a really, uh, you know, fascinating uh, point here about, you know, that worst thing is they might stick around and sort of be mentally checked out. And, and what we've seen even worse is that some of those people are the ones that turn into those that are not only mentally checked out, but maybe actually actively trying to disrupt and disrail your organization because they are, you know, kind of disgruntled or uh, upset with where they are in their life or with inside the company. Does your book kind of address any of that that part of it? Well, um, the book that really addresses the whole engagement, are you engaged or not, is really the love them or lose them, getting good people to stay, which was the book that sold 800,000 copies in 28 languages. And... 
that book said um, the, that book said there are many reasons people go, and if you don't have conversations with all of your people about why they go, what might entice them away, and what would keep them, you can lose talent really easily, and you can miss the signals that. Somebody is, as one client said once, quote, unquote, loose in the saddle. So um, the work blends into each other. And I think all of it says, hey, managers, you have a role in this, but not alone and not to be the fix-it person and not to be the answer machine because the individual has a role, too. Mm -hmm. And that is, in the career side, to think about what they want, what they love doing, and to speak up for themselves. And in the age engagement side, too, it's, you know, why am I not engaged? What would help me be more engaged? So it's both sides, the manager and the individual, that have to take part in that conversation. Well, it sounds like is it's, you know, having this, that conversation, having that, that moment where probably most people are going to not want to have that conversation. They're going to hope that everything's going to be okay, or they're going to want to avoid hearing things that they don't want to hear. Um, they might even fully understand why somebody might go through in a large organization where maybe someone in the middle doesn't have the tools or ability to, to change anything for that person. They're afraid if they talk to them too much, they, they might almost push them quickly, more quickly out the door. Right. Right, and, yeah. and that those are some of, I think, the fears manager have um, from getting into the conversations. And what we tell them in the, in the learning solutions we offer is that you do not have to have the answers. But mm -hmm. what's not negotiable is that you have some really good questions and that you pay attention to the way the person answers those questions and you ask more to help you go deeper and really understand the differences in each of your direct reports and what they want, really want from their work. Right. So we look at engagement, we look at what they want from their work, and probably the other part of that is making sure that that person is being developed for their, in their own career. And that's not always at the top of mind for managers and leaders, mm -hmm. you know, maybe that are really being pushed to get things done, to meet certain initiatives or goals of the bottom, you know, just the basic bottom line type stuff. So right. what, are, what are the career conversations that employees want to have that maybe managers need to know? So I think there are five. Um, and in a way, I've been writing about this forever, but here's the clearest way I can say it. Five things they want. Number one, they want to know that all their skills will be used, not just the skills of the job they were hired for, but they want their managers to get to know them so that, in fact, all of their abilities and competencies can be used. That's number one. Number two, they want ongoing feedback. And employees want that feedback in short conversations, not necessarily in a once-a-year performance appraisal, which most companies now are looking at again and redesigning. So feedback is important. Number three, they want to know what new directions is my organization going in? And, and what might that mean to me? What's changing? Where might we get completely disrupted? 
And what does that mean for me in terms of what I have to know and what I might have to leave behind? So the third question is all about change inside the organization and change outside and how that affects careers. And the fourth question is that employees want is they want to know what are my options? What are my choices here? What are the different career opportunities for me? And I think most employees know that, you know, not everybody can get climb the ladder. And then, in fact, the ladder is really um, not working for, in most organizations. Um, but they want to know they have other ways to grow and other ways to learn. And that maybe the manager is going to steer them in those directions. And then the fifth thing they want to know is, will you, will this be a, an organization that will kind of help my employability? Will I learn here? Will I grow here? Will I be kept on my cutting edge? So those five conversations are really what, in the work I've been doing and the work we do, what our learning solutions try to help managers to feel more comfortable answering. So does that, does make that sense? really kind of push then managers needing to be, I guess, um, you know, getting in more of those touch points with their staff? I mean, that they're right. having more conversations and more opportunities to, to kind of, actually, you know, more data, right? It's just you need to have right. more data points from your, right. from your staff. Exactly, exactly. And now managers are so busy with the task that they say, I don't have time for the people. And I think what we're trying to teach in our work, and a lot of people are, is it's not the length of the conversation. It's, it's short conversations that are really embedded in everyday work. I'll give you an example. Uh, someone turns in a report to you and says to you, boy, am I glad that's done. You take the report, you say, looks like a good job, here's the next one. Instead of pausing just for even 60 seconds and saying, hey, which part of the job are you most glad is done? That would give the manager some insight into that person. It would stop that person and they'd have to think, gee, which part did I really labor with? And I think right there is a one-minute or two-minute career conversation. Right. So it's watching for the clues and cues that get you to get to know your people more. And as we do that, we, we can figure out, I mean, even if a manager didn't care about their people, I mean, and we know they generally do, but let's just for a moment say they didn't care about their people, they could at least gain information that would right. help them be more effective in getting projects done in the future. Exactly. It would help them to deploy their people better. It would help them to make the right, um, you know, moves for on behalf of their people. And um, it shows that I'm interested I value you. I notice you. And I think that's what employees are saying, I don't get enough of. Right, Once I'm right. through my onboarding, that's it. Right. Hey, you're <laughs> lucky to get it then, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here, sign these 500 documents, watch this video, and then, um, yay, you're then here. You're, you're on your own, right. <laughs> so maybe you could talk a little bit about any of this uh, concept of hindsight, foresight, and insight, and how does that kind of framework then work into what we're talking about here with career development? Well, it's, it's a simple way of thinking about career. And it really says there's a couple of steps. The hindsight step means you've got to think 
okay, what are my skills? What are my abilities? And what do I bring to the game? And then you've got to also find out how other people see you. So it's how I see myself. And what's my rep? What's my reputation? What's my brand in the in the organization? And who will tell me the truth? So it's a combination of self-awareness and then checking out that self-awareness with others. And that's a critical first step, I think, in the career conversation. The foresight step says you've got to look out there and you've got to say what's changing in my industry, in my profession, in my work, in this economy, and how will that affect me? And that's the foresight part. And the insight is, finally, given all that, now what are my options, what are my goals, and how do I move ahead? So it's just a simple model to help managers remember that those are three conversations that are crucial, that are crucial parts of the career conversation. Mm -hmm. And the career conversation doesn't start with, what's my next job? Where can I go now? It has to start way back with, you know, so what's my passion? What's my interest? What's my skill set? What do I value? And and that kind of falls in line with the next thing I was going to ask you. That was about, and this was a topic of one of your other books, the the hello stay interviews. I mean, those being really important. Uh, companies are starting to see the value of this, about having this, you know, inter- this stay interview instead of you know, losing somebody. And you can do it proactively before you think there's a problem. And you can also do it when maybe they've indicated they might be giving their notice or have given their notice to right. say, hey, you know, right. how do we keep you? you? Know, so how do those I work? often ask an audience, when does a manager say, oh, my gosh, what can I do to keep you? And the audience always yells out, the exit interview. And I said, well, that is a very good question. It says, I value you. I don't want to lose you. What can I do to keep you? Why not try a stay interview? And why not have frequent stay interviews? And they can sound, they don't have to sound all the same. Um, You mentioned asking it when people first come on. I think at the end of an onboarding process, you must start re-recruiting. So you have to say, so what did you learn during that onboarding? that makes you um, not so comfortable with the job? And Mm -hmm. what are you thrilled to know the job is really going to have? And what are you kind of uh, disappointed that is not part of the job? And that's a stay interview and a a re-recruiting interview. Mm -hmm. And I think asking people those kinds of questions often keeps you aware of their level of kind of job satisfaction, job happiness, and whether or not they're getting um, what they need. Because their motivation is very important to any manager running his department or function effectively. Well, and and the best word you said in that whole uh, little paragraph there was often. And that's really ties into, if you ask them just one time, Right. Um, it's unlikely you're going to get a completely honest answer. People need to have that trust. They need to feel like you really want to know. And you have to kind of prove it by continuing to ask and continuing to take data and not, you know, use it against them or, Absolutely. you know, break trust or whatever. So doing it often, even if it's um, in very small amounts at a time, is, is the key, I think. Now, 
I agree with you. And I think more and more organizations are looking at the yearly performance appraisal and saying, why are we doing this every year? Why don't we do it more frequently? So most companies, many companies, not most, are moving to um, frequent um, touch-based conversations between manager and employee about their performance, and I think it should be about their development as well. And then to go a little deeper, the other kind of important part of this, and this should be something that managers will need to be trained into, the questions that you ask can be extremely important because if you ask, you know, what do you enjoy doing? What is it that you enjoy about your job? Is a completely different conversation than well, what, what's terrible or what do you hate about your job right. or what don't you like doing? Exactly. Right? Exactly. One's a positive focus, one's a negative focus. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, you really will get data from either way. The positive is, of course, a much more, you know, upbeat conversation to have. Um, but you need to learn about your people so that um, you keep them on board, engaged, and, and giving you all of their uh, discretionary effort. Mm-hmm. And um, I think managers um, aren't rewarded for that um, in many organizations that I see. And so if I'm not rewarded, if it's not inspected, it's just expected, I'm not going to work hard to add it into my everyday to-do list. So I think we have to think about how to hold managers more accountable for the growth and development and engagement and retention of their people. Yeah, and, and that you know we talk about this a lot on the show. It gets back into some of the problems with a lot of managers in sort of that middle area where they may not have the training they need, they may be relying on sort of very old and dead, archaic views of of management that even go back to the Industrial Revolution. <laughs> um, you know, do we need to see people to think that they're working? If they're shuffling papers and stapling things, we think they must be productive. Right. Those sort of kind of, you know, as opposed to how can I appropriately measure what this person's really doing? How can I, you know... Uh, really ensure that this person is is doing a fantastic job. What are the, what, what does that look like? Right, um, right. You know, and, and I and, think that organizations are becoming more team driven, more horizontally driven. I'm talking to an IT group in the near future, and um, they're using the word agile to talk about teams that come together for a project, and then maybe. Disband, and that's very different from the linear hierarchical ladder. And in fact, in Help Them Grow, we add a new metaphor. We say the ladder is out. It's never been there for everybody who wants that kind of move, and not everybody does. But we think the better metaphor is to think about um, a climbing wall, one of those indoor climbing walls, and all the different ways you can move on that climbing wall. And um, and you get to choose w- which way, and usually it isn't straight up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, where a team may need to put their focus and how it may need to go isn't always, like you said, straight up or down. It's a it's a great uh, is that a metaphor? Yeah, right. So, yeah, you know, some of the things you're talking about. I re- recently read in a book that was really interesting called Team Genius. Kind of gave a lot of really cool particulars about teams. 
Um, but I'm curious as to what book you might be reading right now. You know, the book that I'm reading, and I'm loving it, is Sherry Tuttle wrote the book Reclaiming Conversation. And before that, she wrote a book called Alone Together. And I love that title. But what she's talking about is um, how bad we're getting at conversation and how our devices are getting in the way. And she even says, putting your phone face down on the table when you're meeting with someone is a sign that you're not fully present. And I just think she makes some great remarks about what, what we're losing in not having conversation time, what what we're losing with families at the dinner table. And um, I think that a lot of millennials who are much more comfortable texting than looking into someone's eyes, um, in some companies they're teaching uh, people how to read facial expression. And, And I think that makes me smile that, you know, some people have lost the ability to read that because we're so into our devices. So I like her book, and um, it's given me a lot of ideas, and she writes beautifully. uh, I'll tell you the other book that I'm just starting, that I'm already loving, (laughs) is called Chained to the Desk, and it's about workaholism. And I'm a bit of a workaholic myself, so I am reading Chained to the Desk so I could maybe learn how to get out of work coming first. Well, we'll list both of these books in our blog recap of this interview, so if you didn't have a chance uh, as you were listening to write those down, we will uh, list them on uh, peopleg2.com on the blog section there. Um, We'll have this up in a few weeks. But, uh, Bev, uh, before we go, my last quick question is, is, um, how can people get a hold of you or if they want to learn more about uh, your company, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Right. The easiest way probably is to just look at Career Systems, INTL for international. We have a website. We have a YouTube channel. We have a ton of papers. And uh, and if one of your listeners has a particular question, they can email me directly, and it will come to me if they send it through the website. Well, Bev, really appreciate you being on the show with us today. And I'd uh, love to have you come back at some point and give us some more insights. Uh, we'll talk about some of your books, but it was a real pleasure having you. Thank you. Pleasure here, too. We'll be back after this quick commercial break with our second guest, Sean Murphy. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. 
No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. My next guest will be uh, Sean Murphy. He's a CEO and founder of uh, Switch and Shift. Uh, Don't forget you can tweet a question uh, for us to ask him. Uh, Just include that hashtag, uh, Talent Talk. Uh, you can also go to talenttalkradio.com and hear past uh, shows as well as the podcast app of uh, iTunes and uh, iHeartRadio on any device, app, or platform. You can get us there and listen to past shows. We really appreciate uh, everyone doing that and tweeting us uh, your thoughts and questions. But uh, let's go ahead and get to Sean. Uh, Sean, welcome to the show. Well, good afternoon. Thank you so much for uh, joining us here today, and why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and, of course, what your company does. Sure. So uh, a little bit about myself. I am, uh, as you mentioned, the CEO and founder of uh, Switch and Shift, which is an organization that really focuses on how do we help organizations be more human. So we we tend to look at you know, the, the policies, the processes, the the ways in which uh, leaders create an environment to allow people to do their best work. That's our focus. Um, I do lots of writing. I have a weekly column at week, at, at inc.com, and uh, my first book came out in October. Uh, what else is good to know? I think we have a podcast, so love what you're doing, love this format. I think it's 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 always fun for me to be able to be on this side rather than your side. Live in Northern California. Well, that gives us a good uh, recap, and it's funny. <laughs> when I've been on other people's podcasts, it always feels like more work to be sitting on the, to be answering the questions than it does to be giving them, which may not intuitively make sense to most of the listeners, but once you kind of get into the hang of doing your own uh, podcast, suddenly being on the other end of it seems, for me, always feels a little bit more difficult now, but... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, that makes sense because you know you got to be the one that comes up with the answers, and you want to sound good and, right. and all of those performance-related expectations. So you, you started to talk a little bit about this uh, idea of a human-centered business. Maybe we could talk a little bit about what a, maybe a human-centered business model is, and what, what does that look like? So a human-centered business model uh, challenges the 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 traditional industrial age mindset, which is something like this, that you are here to support the success of the organization, and at any point in time, you're replaceable. Now, we're not saying that people aren't replaceable, because certainly there are things that happen. We just saw saw that Intel was laying off like 12,000 people. But this human-centered approach says Let's create a mutually beneficial arrangement where you provide us with your talents, your strengths, your passion, all the things that intrinsically motivate someone to want to do great work. Give us that, and not just in exchange for money, which of course is part of the transaction, but rather it being just a transaction, 
you also grow as a human being. So I'll give you an example. One of the companies, uh, one of my favorite companies is a company in uh, Utah called Bamboo HR. Mm-hmm. And Bamboo HR has a anti-workaholic policy. Great example of a human-centered business philosophy. And the idea behind it isn't to manage you know, overtime or you know, bottom line costs. It's to be able to give people time to do non-work related things. They believe that for you to be your best when you're at work, you need to have other interests and spend time with your family and friends. And we as an organization benefit from that. So that is uh, an example of a human-centered business model that creates a mutually beneficial arrangement between employees and the organization. Well, I think we've had someone on from Bamboo HR. That name is, jumps right to my mind as being familiar, but I can't remember the who we had on the show, but that's an interesting connection there. Now, I, probably the first thing, any, if any CEOs are, are listening or anyone who has to think hard about the bottom line, they might, first question might pop in their mind as well, is being human-centered more profitable? I mean, what, what are sort of the, some of the benefits that, you know, we, someone might see in putting that sort of a, a process in place? Yeah, good, great, it's a great question, and I think it's an important one because we don't want this to sound like it's this kind of soft, hippie thinking that doesn't have any relevance to the business world. So there are a couple of business outcomes that come from this philosophy of creating a human-centered business um, model, a human-centered business philosophy. And one of them is, and I'll share an example from my book, The Optimistic Workplace, that I featured a company called Luck Companies. Now, Luck Companies is... Uh, in the aggregate business, they say they take big rocks and make little rocks out of them. It's a blue, very blue-collar company. It has a white-collar corporate you know, headquarter-type work, but predominantly blue-collar. And they practice what uh, is called values-based leadership. So your personal values and the company values are very central to the way that you lead, the decisions you make as a leader, the decisions that are made as an organization. In a 10-year time period, they were 10, or excuse me, 16% more profitable than their their top two competitors. And they're in the top five in the aggregate business across the country. So from a profit perspective, there's definitely a bottom line impact to the company. But I think there are other pieces, and, and Beverly Kay, who was on before me, was talking about this need to be able to retain your employees. And what does that look like? Well, what we know in these human-centered, optimistic workplaces is meaningful work is an important component to what the workforce is looking for today. In fact, a DeVry University research showed that it's 70, 71% of millennials identified with that being meaningful work, being a career, a top career choice. So when we talk about human-centered, that's a very, that's a, a characteristic of being human-centered is that 
people feel that the work is meaningful, and that is a top retent, uh, a top attraction strategy for an organization. And so, if organizations are finding themselves moving away from this type of a model, are there certain factors that tend to play a stronger role in getting people to stop thinking about, you know, that that human component, human centered component? Well, I would love to say yeah, that we're going to see more and more people going towards uh, a more human centered approach, and I think. That would be probably a bit biased on my behalf. I think <laughs> wishful <for> thinking. <laughs> what's that? It's a wishful thinking, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think for the foreseeable future, there will be a a business model that is more profit centered than people centered, and that's that's been the predominant model for you know well over a century. And it's worked. So for some organizations, their thinking is, why shift that? Why do we need to take this human-centered approach? And and that's that's certainly on you know that's certainly a viable business decision. However, I would just add as a caveat that the trends that we're seeing in the workforce and what they're looking for from an employer are significantly shifting and have significantly shifted that challenge a profit-centered philosophy where people are seen as ancillary to what the, to the, the, the value proposition that the business provides to its customers. Yeah, I know what's interesting is that there are so many examples of these companies that we would consider great companies, you know, the, the, the top you know, 0.01%. We see the examples that they put forward. There's just a library full of books, probably just published in the last year or two, on how they do it, what their secrets are. And yet, I think you're right, most companies make that decision well. This sort of other approach, it's I can digest it easier, or I know it, it's sort of intrinsic, and it, it certainly seems like it's what everybody else is doing. Yeah, we're not Google, we're not Apple, we're not Zappos, we're not, you know, name one of those other companies. But yet, the information is out there. It's not like they've held on to it under lock and key, and there's some, you know, secret handshake you have to know to, to put some of these things in place. And yet, companies, you know, on a regular basis, choose to take a subpar approach, and it almost it baffles me. I don't, I don't understand why. It, they, I mean, it's easier. Maybe it's just they don't know any better. I, I, I always have a hard time maybe explaining it or understanding why. And one of my favorite questions is to ask, you know, a CEO or an entrepreneur, you know, how, what's your company culture like? And I usually get, you know, the most surface layer, they totally don't <laughs> get it, response back. And it's like, oh, okay, you haven't thought about it. <laughs> Right, right, right. You know, you know, it's hard work, right? I mean, to to really think about shifting the way that you relate for an organization to think about the way it shifts or it relates to uh, its employees. It's a mindset shift that is really difficult for some to make because it's it's uncomfortable, it's unfamiliar. Yet, human nature says 
that relationships are the way that we get things done. And when you think about what an organization needs, and I don't care if it's large or you know a small startup of you know a founder and a you know two founders, you know you've got to have a strong you've got to have strong relationships in order for you to. To, to accomplish your goals. And that's ultimately what is at the heart of these human-centered businesses is that they place a strong emphasis on building a, a, a solid relationship with employees. And that's where the, that human-centered philosophy comes into play. It's like, well, what does that look like? And how do we, and from a culture perspective, how do we do that so that it makes sense for our business? Because you're right, a lot of people look at Google and Whole Foods and all of these, a lot of these other organizations that are continually at you know at the top of the list for being a great place to work, and it's like, well, we can't. That's not us, and that's that's an important thing to know. But it can't, but what does it look like for you as an organization where you do place a premium on the relationship with? the people who actually get things done in your company. So when your company goes in an organization, you know, what are some of the things that you're looking at, uh, you know, at least as sort of entry points there, when you're trying to assess the culture and really what the, the climate of, you know, internally is for the, for the company as far as, you know, how engaged people are, how, how happy they are. Are there some kind of real... I guess elementary or basic things that you look at just as a starting point to kind of get that that picture in your mind. There, there is, and and we do we do it in a couple ways. We'll do it through you know, interviews. We really want to understand how do your customers, internal or external, view the services that they're getting from from your organization. You know, we worked with a, a, a large healthcare company recently, we're still working with them, and they were doing a reorg, and one of the things that we did is, what's, what's the customer experience like? So that input helps the, the, the decision maker, who's ultimately going to say, this is how we're going to be structured and these are the things that we're going to do, helps them understand what is valuable, what's working, what's broken, and the other follow-on questions that we explore are, okay, so what does it take to be successful here in the organization? And what we're looking for are, is there a shared way of, uh, a shared understanding of what success looks like and what it takes to get to that? Or are people kind of working with such broken processes and systems that they can't actually, you know, get anything really great done so they resort to tack workarounds so we'll look at you know, the, the way that the the systems and processes influence performance we'll look at customer uh, the customer experience you know, and we'll also look at the climate you mentioned climate just a second ago you know and climate is different from culture in that climate is what it feels like to work somewhere and the greatest influence on climate is the immediate team's leader, how he or she influences performance, how he or she develops relationships. You know, his, that leader's leadership style is, is from research that has come out from Hay Group and subsequently from Gallup, 
70% of the employee experience is based on the immediate manager. So we'll look at the skill sets of the manager. You know, are they able to help uh, develop clarity around what's important? Um, do people know, understand what the expectations are? Is there feedback? So we'll, depending on the time that we have, we actually will do a, a comprehensive uh, culture and climate study and you know, we go about that, whether it be using an assessment or actual uh, interviews that we conduct with various stakeholders. So, you know, a company has maybe at least identified there's something that's a problem or maybe something they want to change or get better at. And then well, you guys come in and help them identify that. And then what I always see is the hardest part is, how do, is it difficult for most of these companies to, to really change, to to really put in some of the hard, you know, changes that need to happen, whether that's because leadership has a hard time with it or because employees don't want to have to change their own behaviors and, and things. Do you find that that is the biggest hill to have to climb? It, it, it most certainly is. Um, we experience it in, in a different phase, if you will, of the work that we do. So our approach is not to be front and center as as consultants. We want to be able to build a team of cross, you know, a, a diverse team from directors to individual contributors who actually are responsible for the implementation of, okay, we're, we, we want to be more customer-centric. We'll, we'll provide the data that says here's what's important, and then we'll support the team to be able to create those changes where the fatigue sets in is probably like three or four months into it and you know competing priorities start to interfere with with people's ability to focus on the changes that they say they that are important it's it takes a lot from people to to sustain change it takes a lot to shift mindsets it takes a lot to, to focus on the culture. And that's why we like to focus on the climate levers to be able to push the culture in the direction that it needs to go because it's not as, it's difficult, but it's not as big of a mountain to climb as directly focusing on culture. Um, but, yeah, you got to have patience, which in today's business environment is in short supply, and you've got to have the um, the willingness to keep the communication flowing so that people you know, have a voice, feel like they can voice when things aren't working, feel like they have a voice when things are working. And I like to say get your fingerprints on things. You know, let people kind of roll up their sleeves and get their fingerprints on the work that's going to shape and shift how they actually work. Well, I know you wrote, wrote a book called The Optimistic Workplace. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that book and then kind of lead that into the next question, which is, is there a book that you're reading right now that you might tell us about? Oh, sure. Yeah, so The Optimistic Workplace is about creating uh, an environment that allows people to do their best work. And I define workplace optimism as uh, people feeling like they have hope that good things are coming from their work, that there's a focus on what's possible, 
within the organization and what's right. Oftentimes, we get stuck focusing on the problems and idolizing problems rather than focusing on, hey, what's, what, what, what's possible given the, the problem that we're facing? And there's a sense of connectedness, that there's, there are strong relationships that people can lean on during difficult times to be able to get through the hard work, but also lean on those relationships to celebrate successes, celebrate milestones, celebrate you know, just being a great team. Uh, there's, there's the, they make the time to do that uh, in these optimistic work environments. Um, you know the the other there's there's a lot that kind of goes with that, but we, we've been talking about relationships. You know, relationships are really key in these optimistic workplaces, um, and a leader's ability to create clarity, you know, uh, magnify meaning, and rely on purpose to motivate people instead of just using carrots and sticks like pay and benefits. You know, which are important, but they're not the top motivators. Uh, meaningful work purpose are really key for today's workforce. So those are really uh, strong themes that are a part of the optimistic workplace. Absolutely. Well, uh, Sean, we're just out of time here, but I uh, want to thank you for, for being on the show and want to make sure I give you a chance to do a little plug. How can people get a hold of you or learn more about your company, uh, Switch and Shift? Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, you can con- excuse me, contact me via email, which is Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at switchandshift.com. You can also connect with me on Twitter. I'm at the Sean Murphy, and certainly connect with me on LinkedIn as well. So thank you again for being on the show. I know we didn't get to everything, so hopefully we'll have you come back one of these days and we can pick up where we left off and, of course, get, a, get an update from you. But I uh, really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Next week, we will have our guests. Uh, will be you see Mary Claire uh, Burt, uh, president at uh, Roslyn Business Improvement District, and Patrick uh, Rooney, uh, chief customer officer at uh, Q Social. Hopefully, I'm saying that correctly. But between now and then, uh, don't forget to check out our previous shows on iTunes and iHeartRadio. Until then, uh, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Town Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2.